You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Uh, hello there, Wesley. How are you? Hi, uh, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. This is Glenn Lowry, and this is The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. I am a professor of the social sciences and of international and public affairs at Brown University. And I'm speaking with Wesley Yang, the writer, um, award-winning writer, American Magazine Award winner, uh, who's been published in the New York Times Magazine, in the New York Review of Books, in Tablet, and in other venues, um, who is of Korean extraction, I believe I'm correct in saying so, and who has written a new book that we are discussing here, which I display before you now, The Souls of Yellow Folks. So uh, thanks very much for joining me at the Glenn Show, Wesley. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited about talking about your book, which is a collection of essays uh, by an Asian-American uh, writer um, who is exploring some very interesting very interesting terrain. But I have to start as an African-American writer by asking you about the title of your book, uh, which very obviously borrows from the great W.E.B. Du Bois book of some, I don't know, 120 years ago or whatever, The Souls of Black Folk. Uh, that can't be an accident. Uh, not an accident, but a kind of, uh, you know, look, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a prankish title, right? And so... Um, it, it's invoking something that obviously is, uh, you know, it's not really an appropriate, uh, it's not really an appropriate comparison, right? The condition of uh, black folk at the turn of the 20th century versus those of Asian folk in the 21st century. But, but what both of those conditions have in common is a kind of, a particular kind of double consciousness, uh, you know, which is the sort of sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others and being situated in the case of the Asian American in, in a place that sort of um, results in a kind of dual erasure of, of the Asian American, right? As a kind of, as an overperforming, <laughs> sort of like a, as an overperforming uh, sort of market dominant minority in the United States on the one hand, uh, you know, uh, but at the same time, uh, one, you know, scene, and many of my essays sort of um, talk about the Asian American as a kind of culturally and socially annulled category, <laughs> identity category. So in some ways, the most invisible and yet the sort of least directly stigmatized of all minority groups. And, and it's that kind of dual erasure and that kind of liminal condition where the Asian American of course, um, you know, it, it, Asian American male is the highest earning by average um, demographic group in America. And so Asian Americans are the group that are uh, least likely to be incarcerated, most likely to graduate from high school and college. And so by all of the sort of all of the standard metrics, right, like Asian Americans are a very successful group. And they are. <laughs> and yet when it comes to sort of, uh, you know, recognition within the popular culture, which is one sort of um, metric for discussing the conditions of the Asian American, which is, but it, that's just a proxy for something larger. It's, it's, it's for a kind of um, expectation that the Asian American is a kind of tertiary figure, right, or a secondary figure, or someone who exists in a kind of cultural obscurity or shadow. 
uh, just in the politics of everyday life, right? And so it's that kind of duality that I think makes it interesting to explore the psychological dimension of, of sort of Asian identity uh, versus that of sort of black identity. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a contrast, but there are things that they have in common. At the same time, uh, clearly, you know, we're, we're talking about radically different historical conditions between what Du Bois sure. faced and what the Asian American faced. And well, so it's kind of referencing that. Let me mention one thing that occurred to me right away when I saw the title, uh, The Souls of Yellow Folk, and I thought about Du Bois. Uh, and then I began reading your introduction and uh, your um, articulation of the point of view that you just got through giving voice to about uh, duality and uh, marginality, invisibility, and so on. I thought of this line in Du Bois about two-ness, this very famous you know, one ever feels this uh, duality, I can't quote it exactly from memory, but uh, the African-American who is a Negro and an American uh, uh, at one and the same time, uh, whose, whose uh, uh, soul is being uh, measured by the tape of a world that looks on with amused contempt and pity. That bit hmm. I've got just right. A self-conscious yeah. awareness of how one fits in the vision of the larger society that is looking on at one. Uh, of course, uh, the African-American and the Asian-American experiences are not the same. You've met, you've underscored that. Um, excuse me, something just popped up here. I'm closing it. Um, but but uh, the, the, the notion that there could be some similarity or uh, sort of conceptual um, uh, parallel uh, uh, in this uh, uh, search for, hunt for recognition, this hunger to be seen as an individual, not to be seen as a representative of a class, um, the, the, the sense of low social worth, uh, this, this is a, a very striking, uh, striking and I think valid parallel. Yeah, I mean, there was a period after um, the New York Magazine essay came out where I was, you know, uh, contracted to write a book about Asian Americans and it was supposed to be a reported book and it was supposed to, and it, it didn't come out because I wasn't able to produce it because I had, A, I had some personal problems in my life that prevented it, uh, but B, also because it's very hard to conceive of the Asian American, but there's a period where I would, I would tell people, you know, I'm writing a book and, and they, you know, they, they would say, well, what's the book about? And of I would course. say, well, it's about it's about Asian Americans. And, you know, they would sort of look at you and there's a kind of uh, charity, right? In the oh. way that well, <laughs> oh, there's a kind of, oh, like, that's, that's interesting, right? There was a kind of gentleness to the contempt, right? With which they <laughs> the discussion of the subject that, and it was the gentleness, of course, that was the real sort of, the really sort of galling aspect of it, right? Because, well, oh, what will you say about that, right? That's the question. And... Well, but you being Asian American, of course, uh, we can understand that you might need to write this book, and yet we can't really believe that there's anything interesting to report. So, essentially, right? I mean, that's the that's the sort of unstated assumption, right, behind that response, and it would it reveal itself in a certain way. And of course, like it, what we're describing is a kind of what we're describing is a kind of microaggression, right? Like microaggression being when a person sort of 
reveals what their attitude is about something like in the process of trying to sort of be nice about it. Right. right. And like I, I tweeted something today where I talked about the fact that like I went to a state university. Right. And so I went to Rutgers and I know that I'm talking to someone who is very obsessed with a kind of hierarchy of university quality when I tell them that, because what they'll immediately do is they'll immediately like affirm Rutgers. Like they'll say something positive about Rutgers. Yeah. You don't have anything to apologize about. (laughs) In a way that sort of makes clear that they're attempting to hide the fact that they have this disappointment on my behalf. Yeah. But reveals it in the process. And so, like, that form of kind of fraught encounter, like, is, is you know, the, the way sort of, like, hier- at some level, like, sort of hierarchy is reproduced, like, invisible hierarchy is reproduced in the world. And, of course, the Asian American is not sort of regarded with overt hostility, but he is regarded with things that you take away <laughs> that you get the sense that you're not really regarded as being on the same grounds or having the same worth as everyone else. And, and of course, in a later essay where I talk about Aaron Schwartz, uh, there's a passage where I describe, um, I describe his, he writes a diary when he's at Stanford and he, and he discusses like being in a, conserv- a computer science classroom. And he describes seeing, being in a room where they're mostly Asian Americans, right? Like he's surrounded by Asian people. Do you want to tell people who Aaron Schwartz is? Yeah. So Aaron Schwartz was the subject of a piece that I wrote about in New York Magazine. Uh, He was a a hacker. He was a coder. He was a sort of young tech whiz kid uh, who was involved in sort of like working on certain parts, building out certain parts of the internet when he was an early teenager. And uh, and while still in his teens, he founded uh, the, uh, he founded Reddit. Um, uh, left a couple of years later, he went back to Stanford, and while he was, and and then um, and then eventually sort of became involved in a form of activism where he would uh, liberate academic papers, right? And as a result, he came under the scrutiny of the FBI, uh, was facing charges and and uh, a demand that he do a certain amount of jail time, and in advance of his trial, he killed himself. Um, so. But entirely apart from that, there's, I, I wrote another essay because I did a lot of research on him where I read everything that he had sort of posted on the internet and he posted a lot on the internet and he did a diary where he described sort of being racist, right? Like he described being sort of racist against Asians, but he described it in a way that I thought was very right, in a, in a way that was passive. It, and, and so Asians are kind of recipients of a kind of passive you know, rather than active disdain, where he described sort of, yeah, I was in this room full of Asian people and they all, like, they they didn't really seem to matter, right? Like, they just were kind of around me and I didn't notice them. I only noticed the white faces and I noticed the black faces. And so he's putting something on the record that one suspects may or may not be out there, right? Uh, Here he is confessing to it. He says that there was an Asian guy that was sitting next to me and um, he said something to me, and even though he had no accent, I perceived him as having an accent, and I brushed him off. And so, you know, I posed the question of, like, how do you, how do you um, quantify uh, the effect of things that don't happen to you, right? Because, you know, Aaron Schwartz was a remarkable individual, and if he had talked to that Asian-American man, how would that Asian-American man's life have been different? It might have been altered sure. in multiple ways. He might have had a role in founding Reddit. I'm not saying that he would have or, or, but like, it's certainly, 
and, and it, it, it's, um, and it's that kind of passive thing for which we have invented the concept of microaggression to name it and then to try to use it as a way of ferreting out that, that dimension, that kind of buried psychological dimension of kind of passive aversion. Right. And, and, um, so uh, I, I don't know. Uh, well, let me ask you a question because I can imagine someone listening to you might say, yes, uh, life is hard and uh, I'm sure it's hard to be an Asian American. It's hard to be a trans woman. It's hard to be a Latino immigrant in the Southwest. It's hard to be a black person in inner city Philadelphia. Life is hard. Yeah. Life is hard. Uh, people don't always see you as you wish that you were seen um, yeah. and uh, so on. However, uh, highest educational attainment, highest income, occupational penetration, uh, taking over the tech thing. I just went to the engineering department. All I saw was Asian faces, uh, blah, sure. blah, blah. Uh, yeah. What the heck are you talking about? Grow up. I mean, get a spine or a backbone. Uh, no one said life was going to be easy, but I tell you what, mastery over uh, professional uh, method and technique uh, and uh, economic security uh, and uh, so on and so forth, makes it a lot easier to deal with the inescapable exigencies of the human condition. Give me a break. Well, no, both of those things are true. And of course, that's the sort of duality that I try to write about in the book. Like both of those things are true. And so like even in the midst of economic security, th there can be this kind of tremendous wound that people carry with them. And so, and, and so like... That's what I'm trying to get at. And of course, this was all written uh, sort of in what I refer to as the kind of before times, right? Before sort of the media was taken over by this kind of psychological account of, uh, of the way these hierarchy, these invisible hierarchies do exist in the world. And so my point is to try to say, yeah, these things do exist, right? They are real. They're part of our experience. And the reason why discourses of microaggression and other discourses that attempt to describe this uh, you know my objection though is that you know when we attempt to kind of i think it's fine to describe it and i think it's fine to try to evoke the pain that is involved with it uh but then like you know there there is this effort to turn this to like actually do something about it that would go beyond sort of like creating awareness among people to like actually police them or to police their utterances and to police out of existence this kind of mindset. And I think that, that that is charged with, as I say later in the essay, it's charged with a kind of authoritarian potential. And so like, I oppose that. And yet at the same time, that's what wokeness really is about. It's speaking to the fact that despite the, despite the fact that we've attained a kind of formal equality, right. And that we, and despite the fact that we have sort of ousted overt expressions of racism from the public square, and rightly so, um, there does still remain this other layer. Um, and, 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 there, and there is a question of like, how, how do we think about making changes in this? And of course, the way that it's happening right now is through, you know, through the, the tactics that have been adopted by university administrators um, and so on. Um, uh, measures that I think ultimately are, you know, are, are counterproductive and destructive. And yet at the same time, there, there's, there's, a, there's a real energy that's behind them that has to do, there's a real energy behind them that has to do with people's actual experiences. And, and I think, like, it's important to both acknowledge the basis of that energy, right, but also, like, 
say that we shouldn't allow this to um, we shouldn't allow this to impinge upon our freedoms to the extent that like it it, it makes it it makes the world a worse place. And and I think that we're sort of we're sort of added we're sort of at a point where these things are being fought out, right? And so my book is a kind of prehistory, in a way, from one particular sort of neglected and yet like liminal perspective, that of the Asian American person that that eventually, I, you know, sort of I make this argument in a piece, I don't know if you saw the piece, but I wrote a piece about Andrew Yang, right? And, you know, I, and I, say that, I say that like in a period that has sort of it's made- It's not in the book, it's not in the book. Not in the book. Uh, it came out, you know, a few months ago. Uh-huh. But, you know, I talk about his rise and I say that, you know, sort of in, in a period that has made sort of whiteness visible, right? Because this was a project of the world, right? Is to make whiteness visible. Um, the, the sort of the invisibility of the Asian person, precisely because they are sort of orthogonal, right, to the identity politics coalition. And they are, you know, orthogonal. They're not uh, to, to the sort of the white male coalition. Um, becomes the new center of the country, right? It becomes the kind of the invisible man becomes the new universal man. And sort of, I see Andrew Yang as a kind of 1.0 sort of version uh, of what that could eventually be because we're in the process of moving to becoming a plurality, non-white, non-black country, right? I guess, I, I think we're already there, right? Where, um, and... Do you the say that black non-white leadership is going to be something distinct from? Do you, do you the mean deracinated? Something that doesn't belong to any of these categories? Well, Hispanics and Asians are not black and they're not white. So that's just what I mean. It's it's a non-black non-white identity that has not. We still have a kind of model. We have a picture of the country that's based upon this idea of like a white supermajority and then a black minority. Uh, and and the whole notion of the POC, right, the person of color, is an attempt to kind of expand that concept to encompass like all Hispanics and all Asians, um, and and there's like an ambivalence about that, right? Uh, there's an ambivalence about that about whether whether that's one thing, right? And of course, it isn't one thing. There is there is a there like blacks. <laughs> Hispanics and Asians all have very distinct interests that can be kind of bundled or um, that can be bundled together or disaggregated uh, along different dimensions and along a different set of interests. Asian Americans have an interest with regard to meritocracy and testing that puts them quite at odds with other groups, including white Americans, because the sort of the testing gap between whites and Asians has continued to grow to the point where it's now 100 points. And so, like, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that at that point when that happens, right, there's, there's, a, in, there's an increasing erosion of, uh, of support for testing, where now they're talking about ending uh, SAT as a requirement at the University of California. So this older form of meritocracy that was sort of part of the, uh, there was a kind of, there was a kind of racial bargain, right, where the uh, meritocratic testing was important, but we would also provide uh, affirmative action in pursuit of diversity, um, begins to break down just arithmetically when you have a small minority, Asian Americans, that overperform on test-based measures of achievement to the extent that they do. Well, um, I would just observe that um, 
I don't think American society has the luxury to cast aside meritocratic um, uh, modalities of selection and resource allocation because whites are lagging behind Asians. We don't have that luxury because we live in a competitive global environment where the objective capacity to perform a technical work is going to determine the bottom line for uh, the economy and uh, future prosperity and so on. So uh, we're going to have to find a way to get over feeling bad about losing out in the uh, academic competition to uh, people uh, who's, who descend from Asian populations, since there really isn't any other way forward. I, it, it, you know, we, we may persuade ourselves with affirmative action that we can move the musical chairs around and keep ethnic balances all right, but we're not going to be able to persuade uh, people who are writing code, developing products, and uh, 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 competing effectively in technology and so forth in uh, South Asia or in East Asia uh, to the same effect. All throughout Silicon Valley right now, there is a move. There's a, you know, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that the post merit, there's this thing called the post meritocratic manifesto that sort of argues that meritocracy was always just a kind of, you know, fig leaf for, you know, the domination of white males. Yeah. And, uh, but there's a movement throughout. There's a, there's a, um, you know, Ellen Powell, right? She's the woman that um, she sued. Uh, what does she do? She sued um, Kleiner Perkins. She worked for the VC uh, as a VC and she sued them and she was defeated so badly in court that uh, she had to pay all of Kleiner Perkins legal fees. Right. Um, She sued them on the basis of like uh, sex uh, discrimination and um, you know, four part, four female partners of Kleiner Perkins all got on the stand and said, you know, this person was a toxic presence and she, the only reason she wasn't, promoted was because she couldn't perform, right? That was, they said that on the stand, the jury said, you've, you know, you've, you've lost, Kleiner Perkins wins, and uh, you have to pay their legal fees, which is an outcome that almost never happens. However, how is, you know, she wrote a book about sexism in Silicon Valley, and that book was then uh, sold to, uh, to Netflix, it's going to be turned into a television show, and sort of a narrative of sexism is, is coming out on the basis of it. And she is the um, founder of a nonprofit that sort of is going around saying that everybody has to sign a pledge to have X percentage of, you know, more or less of every identity category, including sort of agendered and non-binary people uh, in accordance with their, their sort of, you know, their demographic, their, their position in the general population as a whole. Right. And that, that's a move that, that's that's a move that's happening, and and so you're saying that we're not going to do this, but I think we're in the process of doing it, right? Like the companies are under enormous pressure from a sort of non, like an NGO a media, uh, you know, sort of conglomerate, mostly to. And if you look at the numbers, the problem is always from the perspective of representation that there are too many Asian Americans. Like that's the actual problem because they'll all have a structure where there will be, there's like 70% of whites in the general population. There'll be like 70% of whites working at the tech company, but like Asians will be overrepresented by a factor of five or six (laughs) and other minorities will be underrepresented proportionate to that. And so this is an example where, let me, uh, let me just observe something, um, Wesley. This has been true about Jews for a long time. 
yes. overrepresentation, outsized performance, and various uh, kinds of uh, sure. uh, specialized and technical pursuits: law, medicine, mathematics, physics, uh, economics, etc. That's right. Um, and somehow the overrepresentation of Jews has not led either to a backlash against meritocracy or to a marginalization of Jews in um, in the society. And I say that with trepidation because I understand that anti-Semitism is a real thing. But still, uh, why isn't such a, 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 a prognosis also uh, reliable in the case of Asian Americans? Well, I mean, the, the Asians are a, a volatile reagent in the midst of this, right? Because... There was a period in the 70s where um, Jews were counted, right, when it came to Ivy League admissions. And, and they were seen as a distinct group, and the sense of their overrepresentation was clear. But they, they're not counted anymore, right? They're, they're just like, you know, they're a, they're, a, they're a large percentage of the white people, right, that are, that are enrolled in the Ivy Leagues. You know, Asians are... 18% or so, and uh, since the lawsuit, their numbers have tipped upwards, right, over 20%. So the, the last, I think, the 2019 Harvard this class... This is in the Ivy League that you're referring to? Yeah, in the Ivy League, right? Yeah. So they're, they're, you know, they're sort of 16 to 20%. So relative to their share of the population, where Asian Americans are like 6% of the... 67% of the population, you know, they are overrepresented numerically by a factor of five or, you know, four or five. But of course, they're overrepresentative relative to what, right? Relative to their share of the population or relative to the share of those who are um, qualified, right? By, by, the, by academic standards of measurement, if those are the standards that ought to obtain. And of course, Asian Americans are suing despite the fact uh, they're suing Harvard despite the fact that they are overrepresented by a share of five or six relative to their share of the population because they feel themselves to be dramatically underrepresented on the basis of what they take to be discrimination relative to where they would be if Harvard only used strictly um, academic standards to measure. And of course, they, they had their, uh, Harvard had their sort of quantitative guy run the numbers, and he said if only grades and SATs were considered, it would be a 43% uh, Asian American population rather than a 20% Asian American population. And so the, you know, the, question, <laughs> the question that we have to ask is, are Asian Americans overrepresented? And it's like, well, relative to what, <laughs> right? And let, me, let me interrupt you just for a minute. I want to make a couple of points. One is, and I think this is subtle and interesting, Jews are not counted, Asians are. That's what I heard you say, yes. in part in response to my observation that Jews are overrepresented and yet uh, it's okay. Why not Asians? You say, well, they're not counting the Jews. Uh, and they're not, although they used to. I mean, counting the Jews today would be overt anti-Semitism. To talk about the Jewish overrepresentation would be a political faux pas at the very least. Um, Asian minority status maybe is not a blessing. Maybe it's a burden. Uh, being included among people of color, although, you know, there is, of course, historical warrant, uh, might at the end of the day uh, be uh, unfit uh, status for Asian Americans in 21st century America. Maybe, well, be maybe becoming white, this is where I'm headed with this, maybe becoming white is uh, 
Uh, look at the intermarriage rates, and I know you know all about this. Uh, sure. I, I last I looked, and it's been some years. It was forty percent of uh, young Asian American women were married to uh, Anglo men. I mean, that's uh, you sustain that for a few generations, and you've got a completely different, um, you know, ethnic uh, uh, kind of uh, morphological. You know, people's looks, their eyes, their face, their how you know it, things are going to change in in a couple of generations. Etc. So, well, so anyway, that, that, that's that's what wokeness is all about, right? It's about making a claim that there are people of color and that people of color will eventually sort of overawe the the, the white minority. But and and but the the whole purpose of that is to kind of preempt uh, a kind of reconstitution of a white majority through intermarriage between not just Asians but 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 Hispanics. And Hispanics do intermarry at very high rates. And, yes. you know, it's true that um, U.S.-born Asian Americans and the vast majority of Asians are still foreign-born. Like uh, 70% of Asian American or people of Asian descent living in America are foreign-born. Okay, uh, that's an of important. those who are born uh, second generation in the U.S., majorities of both men and women, even though there are more women than men, um, are out marrying. So there isn't really... You know, and, and and their children, for the most part, based upon what they look like, <laughs> will have like, you know, like distinct experiences, whether they'll be raced in, in, in other ways. Um, so uh, there's something else I want to say. I, I want people to know that I actually signed on as a outside uh, economist expert to the brief that was produced by Peter Arcia Decano uh, yeah. in the Harvard uh uh, Asian affirmative action case in support of the Asian side of that case. I don't want that to go unsaid. I did okay. do that, and I'm happy to talk about it if anybody is interested, including you, but that's not my main point. Sure. Um, my main point is about the personality rating, Yeah. Uh, which was a part of that case. I just want to explain to people who don't know. Um, so Wesley just stated this. He said that uh, Peter Arcia Decano, he was the economic expert helping Harvard did a regression analysis and uh, controlling for academic characteristics uh, was able to uh, assert that the Asian representation amongst Harvard undergraduates would be more than twice as great as it actually is now if uh, only academic characteristics were used to admit students. Harvard must be discriminating, to which Harvard's response, and this argument was largely accepted by the district court, was that, no, 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 it's not only academic characteristics that we're looking for when we make decisions about admitting students. We're also interested in their personalities. And we're sorry to have to report that the Asians don't do nearly as well on their personality scores as they do on their uh, academic scores. And therefore, uh, this is the outcome that we've received, but we've achieved, but we're not discriminating. Now, I personally, Glenn Lowry, view that argument with some skepticism. That is, I want to see an Asian American student with low test scores, but with a good personality admitted to Harvard mm. and an African American student with high scores, but a quote unquote bad personality rejected from Harvard. And then I'll believe that Harvard is really colorblind and only emphasizing academics and personality traits without regard to ethnicity when it does its admissions practices. I frankly don't believe that, but that's just me. Um, but but what I want to ask you is about the personality rating itself, because I detected in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, a certain amount of almost self-deprecation. I mean, you say at one point, 
Harvard wouldn't be Harvard if they just admitted to their highest scoring people because there'd be too many Asians. You don't say those words, but that's what I read you as saying. There'd be so many Asians hanging around there that they'd no longer be able to pass themselves off as, uh, you know, the the uh, entryway into the American uh, establishment because the American establishment can't be, you know, as Asian in its personality as, as these students are. Something like that. Well, so, Do I well, read you correctly? Harvard has always um, tried to hold three different commitments that are in some tension with one another, but can be made to work together um, in balance. And, and sort of the aspects are that of social justice, um, but of course, um, but also academic excellence, right? But also they, they, they are beholden to a whole class of incumbents, including the sort of the, the descendants of their founders. Um, and so- Indeed. They're bringing together the smartest people with like the most privileged people in the country so that they can involve, so they can engage in a kind of exchange with one another and so that they can maximize the amount of bleakness, right? They have at their disposal. And it, on the basis of that, you know, they've, they've grown their um, endowment to the point where, you know, there are, there are only a handful of hedge funds that control more resources then, then Harvard's endowment controls. It's something like 40 billion, I think, at this point. And um, so they've been excellent stewards of their legacy and of their, uh, and a primary instrument of that legacy is their, is their, uh, is their, um, their admissions procedure, right? And um, it's, it's about minting an elite and it's about being as exclusive you, as you can be uh, it, as, as an organization. And so, Narrowly optimizing for, uh, you know, for a, a single metric, uh, i.e. academic performance, is not going to maximize the thing that the admissions officers are there to maximize. So they maximize the other thing. And that necessarily entails, right, um, that necessarily entails pursuit of a certain kind of, uh, you know, a certain mix of personalities that, that is not going to be, <laughs> as I said, you know, overwhelmingly Asian. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what they do. Whereas uh, California Institute of Technology, they do things another way, right? Like they're simply focused on getting yeah. the brightest engineers in the country together. And for that reason, I think they are major, like more than 50% Asian. And um, um, so, like, you know, if you want to sort of take an apologetic sort of response to it, yes, of course, there's a reason why certain colleges that have a certain set of priorities do things one way, and there's a reason why another set of colleges that have another set of priorities do things the other way. However, okay, Wesley, okay, Wesley uh, that's Harvard. Right. Uh, what about the New York City public school system? What about yeah. uh, Stuyvesant, uh, Brooklyn Tech, um, so, right. uh, Bronx High School of Science? Uh, Hunter College uh, High School. They use these are, these are these are not grooming uh, houses for the elite with the multi-billion-dollar endowments. These are working-class immigrant populations from all over the world scrambling their way up the ladder of American society, exhibiting excellence uh, in extraordinary ways uh, and uh, giving testimony to what's possible for people with modest economic backgrounds. Uh, and very little toehold in American society, what's possible for them to achieve. It's a completely different story than the Harvard story, I, I, it seems to me. I, I agree completely. It's, it's um, 
you know, to get into one of the specialized high schools, which includes Stuyvesant and Bronx Science, um, you take a single exam and, and then they grade you on a, a single hierarchy. Everybody takes the same exam. And in one sense, like that is the very definition of both meritocracy and equality. But the outcome is going to be determined ultimately by the cultural baseline of certain groups, right? When you parachute into a system that grades people in that way from societies that have been determining their fate of their young people for a thousand years on the basis of cramming for a single exam, you will inexorably arrive at lopsided outcomes such as the ones that we have, where at Stuyvesant, the percentage who are Asian, sometimes it's 80, sometimes it's 70, sometimes it's somewhere between 70 and 80, because you have a lot of kids who are coming from mainland China, which is, happens to be one of those societies that has been determining the life chances of their children on the basis of the single test for a thousand years. And thus, it's deep in the um, cultural mores and folkways of that group that test preparation and paying X share of your family's income, whatever that income happens to be, and if the income is very small, and if that percentage is something like 20 to 40% of your income, you pay it, right? Like, and that is a culturally determined fact that manifests itself at the level of the results that we see, where Asian Americans are something like 15% of the New York City population, there are 50% of those who make it into the specialized high school. But this is something that I think is very important to underscore. Uh, if you look at um, Brooklyn Tech, which is one of the specialized high schools, it's an exam school. As recently as 1989, Brooklyn Tech was, you know, majority black and Hispanic. Right, and, and that figure has gone down a lot in subsequent decades. And if we want to know what happened there, we have to, we have to get this right. And so there are a couple of things that happened. One of them was they got rid of a lot of gifted and talented programs, right? And they got rid of those gifted and talented programs as a kind of egalitarian measure uh, because it was mostly whites that were getting into them at the time. But in the process of getting rid of all those gifted and talented programs, they, they left many black and Hispanic kids without access to them, A. And let, let me just explain to the listener that these are programs at the elementary school level elementary that would school. have cultivated black and Hispanic students to more effectively compete for admission to the exam high school. The other thing is, is that there are, um, since 1990, since 1989, there has been a growth of programs like Prep for Prep that use um, sort of private money to send promising young black and Hispanic kids to uh, to Dalton, to sort of private, you know, major private schools. It's to the yeah. point where they're taking like 1,200 kids out of the system. Those are the same kids who... I had no idea that it was so many. Yeah, well, there's, there's multiple different scholarship programs now. And Prep for Prep is not the only one. Mm -hmm. And so... Those are the kids who would have been cramming for, those are the black and Hispanic kids who would have passed the SAT in the past. They don't have to do that anymore. And so as a result, they have a different set of options. And so um, when there were, and also there are charter schools. Um, and, and if you, there are, there were huge sort of um, 
protests against de Blasio, uh, rel- you know, charter school, hundreds of uh, sort of like mostly West Indian and African parents, like, you know, like, so like the, the black families that really care about the education of their kids, they have these options that I've just described. Yeah. And that's what they're focusing on. Whereas um, white families that care about the, the, their, uh, the education of their children and want to have it happen in the public school system, they have their own set of options. And those are the screened schools that do more sort of holistic evaluation of their entrance. And those schools are more black and Hispanic than the test schools, but they are much more white than the test schools because Asians would have to like do a portfolio. They're, they're evaluated on not a single metric. So they're not focusing on that. There, ha- there, there are options available for everyone that cares about their education. It's a kind of false, there's, there's a kind of false crisis there that is being manufactured on the basis of, oh, there's such overrepresentation, And in many cases, when sort of even sort of New York Times reporters will write about this and they'll try to say that, oh, there's so few black and Hispanics in the, the SHSAT, uh, you know, in the uh, exam schools, without mentioning the fact that Asians are the preponderance of those who are in the program. They're acting as if it's a white-dominated system. It's not a white-dominated system. It's a system that whites actually have given up, for the most part, attempting to compete for because it happens to align with the cultural baseline of a particular group of people. And yet to sort of admit that there is such a thing as a cultural baseline that is inexorably going to result in certain kinds of outcomes like the ones that we're seeing is inadmissible into the discourse for, you know, for a lot of different reasons because of what that implies about other people. But it doesn't actually have to imply anything about anyone other than the fact that people who really put a lot of emphasis on test taking tend to do well on tests. And um, Okay, it doesn't mean that they're working any harder? It doesn't mean that they know more algebra when they get ready to get to uh, math or high school? Part of that emphasis means that they're working harder. Part of that emphasis means that they are putting... 20% 20% of their family income, of all their family income. Well, my right? point is it's not only a capacity to take tests that's being cultivated, but it's also the objective mastery of difficult to acquire information that is extremely valuable later in life they and are also productive skills. in the economy. They are learning skills. They are that's, learning what I, that's what I'm saying. And those skills matter. Those skills matter a great deal. Those skills matter a great deal, but they're now now there is enormous pressure on Silicon Valley to uh, to diversify, and so there's a there was a there's actually a directive that went out at YouTube at a certain point where they said, and of course this is not legal, <laughs> but you know they said we're going to not there there is a moratorium for the next year or so on Asian and white male hires, right? And there are lawsuits that that have they have emails overtly stating uh, this effect. But, you know, litigation, as we know, civil rights litigation, right, that it they're takes involved a long in, time. takes a long time, uh, takes a lot of costs. You are utterly vilified in the media. And so it's, it's, um, it's something that you don't actually, that you can't actually obtain any justice from. And, of course, this okay. works another way as well. Uh, I, I want to talk about something else while I have you here, because uh, we're going to run out of time soon enough. Uh, a remarkable essay opens your collection. Uh, it is about Sung Hui Cho, uh, the Korean uh, student at uh, Virginia Tech who went on a shooting rampage that I think it still stands as the uh, uh, largest mass killing uh, in American uh, in American history. Am I right in saying that? 
Uh, it was at the time, but I, I think it's been... It's uh, been eclipsed. It's, it's, In any uh, case, um, will you try to summarize, if you can, in a few minutes, what motivated you to write this essay? This is a, 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 a taking us inside of the um, twisted and tortured uh, mind uh, of, uh, of this poor, uh, troubled, and, uh, you know, disastrously uh, misguided individual. He took many lives. He destroyed many lives. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's very revealing in many ways. And I, and I want the listeners here to get a sense of what you're, they should read this essay. They should definitely read this essay, what you're after and what your motivations were in writing it. Well, so the thing happened and the guy did some stuff that other people have sort of subsequently done, but that was new at the time, which is write a manifesto and send it to, you know, the media in advance of his killing spree and, you know, create online videos and so on. Uh, you know, now this is kind of uh, formulaic, but at the time, you know, he sort of conceived of this, first of all, like he was interested in, he was taking creative writing class he took a creative writing class. With Nikki Giovanni. Yes, with Nikki Giovanni. <laughs> who, who was from and, the 60s and 70s, a, a fabled uh, 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 woman of color, poet, uh, writer who was uh, award-winning and uh, so on. And you can say more, but uh, well, I was surprised was, to see that. an angry, radical black nationalist who, uh, you know, w- within the within the framework of poetic license, you know, wrote uh, sort of uh, wrote essays uh, calling on black people to commit murder, saying, why are we just murdering ourselves? Why are we murdering white people? Um, and that was, it has to be contextualized within, within the politics uh, of its of time. time. And, um, and so she ended up having this disturbed uh, person <laughs> in her classroom and she gave some, uh, comments about it and it was a whole question of like well to what extent does this person's discontent fit within the framework of identity politics right because he was uh and and of course he's you know he was totally indigestible to it um and i and i asked well what kind of sucker would this person perhaps have found within identity politics rather than to be this kind of pure lost individual on his own who begins to fantasize of a kind of war of the loser, of the loser male, right, against the rest of society. And at the time I was suggesting that this kind of war of the loser male, a person denied recognition, particularly in the form of the recognition of women, right, could be a volatile could eventually grow to become a volatile element within our society, especially as it finds expression right on the internet. And, you know, I think that ended up being like a correct kind of surmise because, um, because we're creating, we're sort of, we're generating this population of surplus males, right? Like a kind of a free market, (laughs) right? Like a free market in, in sexual choice. Um, And this of course was, you know, back then, you know, sort of Welbeck's book came out where he was talking about the, the, the application of neoliberal free market dynamics upon the sexual marketplace will create two classes of people. It creates classes of sexual oligarchs, right? And it creates the class of, of uh, the sexually immiserated. And, um, 
And of course, um, and, and so, you know, that was a book that I had recently read. And of course, I'd recently read a book called The Game, which was about sort of being from the class of the sexually immiserated, attempting to reinvent herself to become a sexual oligarch. And all of these things fit together with this event that for the most part has like gone into the, the memory hole, right? Like yeah. uh, Sung Wee Cho has been replaced by Elliot Roger, who was the much later version of him. Elliot Roger wrote like a 200 page uh, manifesto of the, that, that is kind of seen as foundational of what then became incel ideology. And we now have sort of uh, the, the Texas uh, sort of police uh, issuing a statement saying that, you know, this is actually like a terroristic threat to the country, right? And um, so to go back to like Sung Wee Cho, you know... Average uh, frustrated chumps who can't get any women to pay attention to them turn within themselves with, with their rage and then act out are, according to Texas authorities, potentially a terroristic threat yes, well, to civil they- order? Because they're going on to message boards where their their sort of grievances there have 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 been articulated into a kind of pseudo political um, ideology, right? So there is talk of a beta revolution, right? So like th- there was the sort of the promise of the PUA was as you as an individual can empower yourself by learning these skills and you can upgrade yourself from the upgraded chump to the pickup artist. But that was a, that was a, that was a kind of, it, it was, first of all, it was a, like a, a grift and it was a way to make money. And, uh, and it, it turned out to be that you had a group of people who are not able to improve themselves in this way through, through, through the mastery of skills. And they sort of found an echo chamber for themselves on certain message boards where they elaborated a sense of themselves as being aggrieved and seeking violent redress. It's not so different structurally, fundamentally, from online recruiting of jihadists, right? It's like you have some lonely person who is searching for meaning in their life, who has a great grievance against certain categories of people. He finds others who then affirm him in his resentment, affirm him in his rage, and uh, and and so that this process is happening across the board, right? Where where sort of certain kind of discourses of kind of uh, you know white privilege and so on are being articulated. These are not being articulated on on underground message boards. They are being articulated within the mainstream press, right? Where people's kind of frustration about the way their lives are limited. It, there are theorists, right, who are there to tell them that, like the the sort of, like the world is is uh, is turned against you, <laughs> and and new forms of identity are being sort of created and manufactured all the time to sort of uh, to sort of like um, take and new echo chambers are being created where people's um, sense of aggrievement are then articulated into pseudo political and in some places actual political platforms. And let me ask you, know, you this. What, what do you see? There, there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, we were talking about Asian overrepresentation amongst academically successful people in competitive venues like Harvard or New York exam schools. Um, we were talking about Asian invisibility in terms of people not uh, recognizing, not taking seriously and so on. 
the uh, complex, uh, you know, sort of existential uh, reality of uh, a person just because they look a certain way. And now we're talking about uh, average uh, frustrated chumps and pickup artists and, uh, you know, the losers in the sexual marketplace and the frustrations that those give rise to. Connection between uh, the, the Asian identity aspect of this and the frustrated male uh, loser in the sexual marketplace aspect of this? What, what connections I mean, might you... Yeah. I think there's a lot of overlap between those things. I think that sort of the rebuttable presumption, right, as the Asian American male, is that you're not really a part of the uh, you're not really a part of the game, right? And uh, so no, I didn't was, know that. Is that that's well, true? A study that was done by um, I, one of the Freakonomics guys. Um, he did a study where he was looking at online dating, and he reached uh, the conclusion. And of course, I'm not in a position to check his numbers, but he yeah. says that. The, the Asian American male, in order to have uh, a, a, the same likelihood as to receive a response from his otherwise identical white counterpart, yeah. and of course, identical, what does that mean? But like based on the stats, yeah. would have to earn $360,000 more. <laughs> to be Sorry, that's not funny. And, you know, like he also, he had figures for like blacks and, and Hispanics, and they were quite large, but the largest alpha, right, was between the, the Asian American and the white male. And so that was just, you know, I, I don't know what that means. And exactly you know, the opposite is true for Asian females? Uh, yes. Well, I, you know, they didn't have a, they didn't talk about sort of income and so on. But there are all kinds of sort of analytics that have come from very different, from OkCupid and so on. OkCupid used to put out like very sort of politically incorrect blog posts uh, looking at their um, looking at their metrics, and yeah. they don't do that anymore, right? Because of what they what they reveal, and um, but yeah, no, of course, um, the the Asian American woman is sort of, I I think the basically the the metrics show that they're the most likely to get responses, and um, and but there was also like a very like there was a finding that the gap the gap between likelihood of getting a response for an Asian American male. And of course, those who are on these platforms are a self-selected group and they're not representative of sure. the entire group. But um, he was the, he was more, the Asian American male was least likely to get a response from the Asian American woman, right? The Asian American, the white male was most advantaged relative to the Asian American woman relative to the Asian American male. And of course, like, I, I definitely steer clear of this. There's a, there is an online, there's an ongoing kind of online war between Asian American feminists and Asian American males that, uh, that I want no part of, but I'm just existing. I'm just, I'm describing that this is a fact, right? That there is, there, that there are Asian American men who say um, that Asian American, you know, Asian American women are betraying the race by, you know, sort of pandering to white men and, and going with them. Um, but, you know, it's a counterpart of a discourse, you know, among among black men and black women, you know, sort of uh, in uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams book. Yeah. He notes the fact that I think black males are three times as likely to marry to outmarry as black females. And, and so I think that's at least the number. I could be greater than that. Yes. And so this produces these. Um, very aggrieved, discontented populations, black women and Asian males, but sort of in the popular discourse, one of those groups 
sort of grievances, right, is seen as important. And, you know, I don't know if you know who Roxane Gay is, but it's seen as kind of like one of those groups, sexual, sexualized frustration relative to their race is seen as like, it's valorized, it's an important issue. Like, bus, That's bus black people. women that you're talking about. Yes, right. Whereas, you know, the, the sort of the grievances of the Asian American male, there they will, will always be sort of denounced as misogyny and so on. Because the Asian American male who is upset about his sort of ranking on the hierarchy of sexual attractiveness for no other purpose than than his race, that person ultimately his grievance is with women, right? Because it's women who are choosing. And and of course the issue actually only gets more intense when you involve like gay Asian males um, uh, in that sexual marketplace as well. But the reality is is that like you know sort of the Asian American male who who feels his sort of masculine masculinity assailed uh, exists within a context when masculinity itself is seen as this inherently problematic thing. So to want it, to aspire towards it, or to see it, uh, you know, or to observe that is something that has been taken from you is already a kind of complicity with many layers with patriarchy. of, of yeah. patriarchy and oppression. So, that's, okay. that's one thing that I I, I, I just kind of I, I don't want to kind of get wrapped up in it and yet I wanted to like find an opportunity to just like push right through it. And for whatever reason, the the, the, the Cho the Cho story ended up being that vehicle. And and so I wrote it and you know the essay really sort of like it changed my life in the sense that like it made me um, it put me on the map uh, among writers. And after that, I sort of heard from New York Magazine and other places. And on the basis of that, like I was able to have a career as a freelance writer. Well, so, it's very much deserved because the essay is extraordinary, as are other of the essays in uh, Wesley's book, which I commend to your attention out there in Blogging Heads land. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm going to sign us off uh, with your permission, Wesley. Okay. Uh, but I really enjoyed the book, and I very much enjoyed meeting you uh, virtually okay. and uh, sharing this conversation platform with you. Okay, thanks so much. So thank you, and uh, good luck to you. Okay. <laughs>